This is Medieval Death Trip for Wednesday, May 11th, episode 24, How Edward Put His Mother to the Ordeal. Welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and I hope everyone had a nice Mother's Day this past weekend, Um, at least those of you who live in the part of the world that celebrates Mother's Day on the second Sunday of May, which I see is pretty much all of the English-speaking world, uh, except for the British Isles. Today's episode is a special um, Mother's Day chaser episode. Uh, coming a little off of our regular schedule. Wow, that was really nearby. Um, uh, As I was saying, this is a week ahead of our regular schedule. Oh, I see. Um, Okay, this episode is dropping a bit ahead of when I would normally be expecting to release an episode in our highly irregular and inconsistent schedule. Is that better? Okay. The astute among you listeners might cleverly deduce that this was devised as a full-fledged Mother's Day episode, uh, and you would be right. Um, But I think it also works as a kind of Mother's Day hangover cure. Anyway, if nothing else, it has allowed me to accomplish the paradoxical feat of releasing an episode both early and late at the same time. Today's text is a case study in how not to treat your mother. It's a story about the trouble between Emma of Normandy and her son, Edward the Confessor, early in that king's reign. It comes from a 12th century document called the Annals of Winchester, possibly written uh, and almost certainly compiled by Richard of Devizes, a monk of Winchester. But before we get to the text, uh, let's talk a little bit about the extraordinary life of Emma. As an 11th century English queen, she certainly falls prey to the um, apocryphally Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. My source for much of what follows is Pauline Stafford's book, Queen Emma and Queen Edith, Queenship and Women's Power in 11th Century England. Uh, Let me see if I can give you a little capsule biography. The date of Emma's birth is unknown, as are the details of her childhood. The hypothetical boundaries for her birth date are rather depressingly set based on how young she could plausibly have been when she was first married in 1002 uh, and then bore her first child two years later. Uh, So that puts the latest birth year at around 990, which supposes marriage at the age of 12 and a first child at 14 or 15. Um, She needn't have been that young, of course, but she also wasn't likely to have been older than her early 20s, which leaves us with her being born sometime in the 980s. Her parents were Count Richard I of Normandy and his Danish-born wife Gunnar, a union which took some time to be granted full legitimacy um, and maybe never quite got all the way there. Uh, We talked about priestly concubines last episode, Gunnar may well have been an aristocratic concubine who took over the spousal role after the death of Richard's first wife. Emma's parentage also reminds us of 
One of the sometimes forgotten facts about Normans in the 10th and 11th centuries, uh, the Norman lords were French-speaking, and they were in the circle of the French court, but they were descended from Norse ancestors and maintained significant connections to the Scandinavian kingdoms. You sometimes get this picture, um, I think especially in comedy sketches or pop culture references, you get this picture of the Norman conquerors of England being effete continental Frenchmen, which I guess is the kind of impression you might get if you only really think about the Norman conquest in terms of its huge linguistic impact upon the English language. Um, but in some ways, William the Conqueror was more like his Norwegian rival for the English crown, uh, Harold Hardrada, than Harold Godwinson. And Emma's father, Count Richard of Normandy, was closely affiliated with the Viking warlords who were ravaging England and the coasts of Europe at this time. In her description of him, Stafford contrasts two different 10th century historians, one who calls him rather grandly Duke of the Norman region, and the other the leader of the pirates, meaning the Vikings who found safe harbor in Normandy. This leads us to the first major recorded event of Emma's life, her marriage to the English king Athelred II, known to posterity as Athelred Unrad, or Athelred the Unready, uh, whose name I glossed back in episode four. In 1002, uh, Athelred was a widower. He'd had at least one wife before, uh, maybe more, it's a bit unclear, um, and a marriage to the daughter of the recently deceased leader of the Normans and the sister of the current count stood to help the English king get some leverage in negotiating with the Viking fleets cruising the Channel and the Irish Sea, contemplating targets. Emma arrives at the English court as an outsider. She probably spoke both French and Danish, uh, but not English. Her new husband already had children from his previous marriage, including the natural heir to the throne, so she comes in as a stepmother to children who were nearly her own age. And when she arrives, she's given a new English name, Alfgifu, uh, to replace her Norman one. And confusingly and disturbingly, this new English name happens to be the same name as that of Athelred's previous wife. And to add to the awkwardness, the marriage did not solve England's Norse problem. In fact, Athelred, in one of his most unready moments, uh, is said to have deeply antagonized Swain Forkbeard, the king of Denmark, by ordering the massacre of the Danes in English cities on St. Price's Day, uh, only a few months after his marriage, a massacre in which Swain's sister was killed, um, at least according to some accounts. Um, and this led to a massive retaliation by the Danes. And, by the way, the St. Bryce's Day Massacre is certainly going to be a future episode for us. Emma's activities during this period of the first years of her marriage are reduced by the chroniclers to pretty much nothing but motherhood. She gives birth to her two sons, Edward, who will go on to become Edward the Confessor, and Alfred, uh, as well as a daughter, Godgifu. Meanwhile, Swain presses his vendetta against Athelred, and in 1013, the Danish king successfully conquers England, sending the old king fleeing with his queen and her sons to exile with her relatives in Normandy. And things stay topsy-turvy, as Swain dies rather suddenly the next year, so that Athelred is able to return to the English throne, bringing Emma back with him. And only two years after that, Athelred himself dies, and his son from his earlier marriage, Edmund Ironside, fights with Swain's son Canute for the kingdom. 
Uh, this might have been the end of Emma's story in the history books, except that the victorious Canute decided to take the widowed Emma, uh, now in her 30s, as his queen, a move that served both to symbolize Canute's absolute conquest of England and of Athelred's dynasty, but also to suggest the establishment, at last, of peace and unity between the English and the Danes. The degree to which this marriage was consensual on Emma's part is rather unclear from the sources. Uh, those sources looking back on it say that it was, and that it was celebrated on both sides. Uh, Emma herself is recorded as saying, uh, decades later, that it was a marriage of equals freely entered into, but it's hard to see how she had much freedom in this decision uh, as essentially the captive of the new king. These medieval political marriages can represent subjugation or alliance, and they can be called one while functioning as the other. But regardless of Emma's status entering into a second queenship with a new husband, she did pretty well out of Canute's two-decade-long reign as the combined king of England, Denmark, and Norway. She appears quite often in the lists of witnesses to important charters and grants, and takes her place as a major patron of religious houses. She comes to wield a great deal of political influence, and as Canute was often away from her, administering his other two kingdoms, she appears to have functioned as a kind of regent in England during his absences, um, sharing authority with the archbishops and the leading earls. She cuts a formidable figure. Emma had two children with Canute, a son, Hartha Canute, and a daughter, Gunhild. But the lines of succession were a bit muddled. Emma was again a second wife. Canute had already been married to an English noblewoman, also, I kid you not, named Alfgifu, as a baby name, Alfgifu must have been the Madison of the 990s. Um, and actually, I just had to fudge that. Madison was the second most popular American female baby name of 2015. The most popular? Emma. To make things even thornier, Canute was not a widower. Alfgifu was still alive and had sons from her marriage with Canute at the time that Canute upgraded his marriage to an English queen. Uh, this all gets rather complicated, and it throws a shadow over the legitimacy of his and Emma's marriage and the status of her children with Canute. To hit the highlights, when Canute dies in 1035, Emma's son, Hartha Canute, becomes king of Denmark, but one of Canute's sons from his previous marriage, Harold Harefoot, takes the English throne. Now, throughout Canute's reign, Emma's sons by Athelred had been living quite apart from her with family in Normandy. They were, after all, potential challengers to Canute's dynasty um, and had no welcome place in England. This situation no doubt had something of a chilling effect on the relationship between Emma and her first two sons. When Harold Harefoot took the throne, a kingship which, like Emma's marriages, was shadowed by questionable legitimacy, he seized most of the property Emma was supposed to have inherited from Canute and greatly reduced her power in England. Emma was now in the unenviable position of being mother to rival claimants to the throne. Uh, Hartha Canute, who had many supporters in England, including Earl Godwin, and her other sons, Alfred and Edward, who also had claims, uh, but not a lot of support. In 1036, while Harold was in power but not yet officially crowned, Edward and Alfred came to England, apparently at Emma's request, each with a band of armed supporters each trying to make their way to their mother at Winchester. Alfred was intercepted by Godwin's men and was blinded 
and later died. Edward went back to Normandy, and Emma became, again, an exile from England, this time taking up residence in Flanders. She rather pointedly did not join up with Edward in Normandy. And yet, relations seem to have improved after Harold Harefoot dies of a mysterious illness in 1040 and Harthacanute becomes King of England, in addition to King of Denmark. Interestingly, rather than being ostracized, Edward is invited along and seems to be being groomed for the throne. Whether this is because Harthacanute's own illness was becoming apparent at this time, or simply because Edward could function as a viable regent in England while Harthacanute was focused on uh, running Denmark, uh, this is also unclear. But as the mother of the king and of the presumptive heir, uh, Harthacanute being as yet unmarried, Emma's power and influence again grew strong. Perhaps a little too strong. Harthacanute reigns for only two years, dying from sudden convulsions at a feast, uh, though he'd been afflicted with bouts of illness for quite some time. Edward becomes king, and in 1043, he turns against Emma and deprives her of most of her property and power. Her close advisor, the Bishop of Elam, suffered similar disgrace. Why did this happen? Well, it's almost certainly a power play by Edward to neuter the influence of the woman who had nearly 40 years of queenship under her belt, and who certainly threatened to overshadow her son in terms of power and influence. And this brings us pretty much to today's story, which gives us an account of this conflict between mother and son. Uh, I'll have a few things to say about this text later, um, but for now, let's get straight to it. This is from the Annals of Winchester, as translated by Joseph Stevenson. In the year 1042, King Harthacanute died at Lambeth, cut off by a sudden death, and he was buried in the Episcopal Church at Winchester. In the time of King Harthacanute, Queen Emma lodged at Winchester and was on very friendly terms with Alfwin, then the bishop of the city of Winchester. All-powerful in the kingdom, abounding in wealth, her affections were centered in her son, who occupied the throne, and her attention was engrossed by the bishop, for whom she had a great regard. Some persons conveyed intelligence to Edward in Normandy, touching his mother's suspected familiarity with the bishop, affirming that it was chiefly owing to the bishop that the mother shed no tears for the death of one of her sons, Alfred, and kept the other, Edward, out of sight. Queen Emma, Harthacanute's mother, gave to the Church of Winchester, for the soul of King Harthacanute, many ornaments of gold and silver, jewels and costly vestments, and two manors, namely Westwood and Paraperminster, for the queen owned those numerous manors which King Athelred had given her for a dowry, and Kings Canute and Harthacanute had established a hereditary right of assigning them to whatsoever places and bestowing them upon whatsoever persons they thought proper. In the year 1043, Edward, King of England, son of Athelred, came in disguise to Winchester, clad in mean attire, and feasting, at times in his mother's court, at times in the bishop's mansion, but unrecognized, he attentively scrutinized the looks which they exchanged. At last he was recognized, and was elected king, and consecrated at Winchester. He ordained, and confirmed by charter, 
that as often as he or any of his successors, kings of England, should carry the crown to Winchester or Worcester or Westminster, the presenter of the place should receive from the treasury on that day half a mark and the convent a hundred seminal cakes and a barrel of wine. This charter is at Westminster. He took to wife Edith, the daughter of Godwin, perpetual virginity being preserved by both. He honored Godwin above all men. His mother he neither loved nor discomposed in public. He invited from Normandy certain persons who had been kind to him in his exile, among whom was Robert, whom he first made Bishop of London and afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury. This Archbishop fretted the mind of King Edward with so many hints and innuendos that he, though naturally disinclined to harshness, was moved to such a pitch of bitter resentment that he drove from his kingdoms with his sons that very Earl Godwin who had made him king and whose daughter he had espoused. From his mother, Queen Emma, he took away all that she possessed in the world, even to the value of a farthing, and, having thrust her into the Abbey of Werewell, he caused her to be kept there in the extremity of penury. Alfwin, Bishop of Winchester, his mother's reported paramour, after stripping him of all his patrimonial property, he forbade, on peril of his life, to set foot beyond the boundary of the city of Winchester. Godwin, with his sons, quitted the kingdom. The episcopal residence of Bishop Alfwin became his prison. The queen was placed in custody at Werewell, but subject to a confinement less strict than her son had enjoined. She was permitted to write to all the bishops whom she had believed to be faithful to her and to set forth her sorrows. Her letters ran in this tenor, that she was more afflicted and abashed at the bishop's disgrace than at her own, that she was ready to prove before the tribunal of God that the unjustly calumniated prelate had never touched her flesh, and that neither she herself nor he had ever done or wished to do anything to the prejudice of the king, that the bishops ought to seek the presence of the sovereign and to intercede for their fellow bishop, and by every means in their power persuade him to listen to his mother's justification of herself and of the bishop that an upright conscience publicly impeached of crime could not otherwise be purged than by a public release, and that she chose the ordeal of red-hot iron. Only let them stipulate that, by the king's directions, the ordeal should take place in the church of St. Swithin at Winchester. She was sure of the suffrage of the saint in confirmation of the testimony of her own conscience. That if they delayed in carrying this matter into effect, her heart would break at the further exposure of her poverty, because the chief and most intolerable curse of poverty consists in this, that it makes men contemptible. That the king would be universally disgraced if he chose rather to punish a parent whose guilt was neither established nor acknowledged than to accept her clearance from the imputation, for the importance of the accusation increases in proportion to the rank of the individual accused. In these days, a mother is persecuted by her son, a queen by a king who has also put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. Each of the bishops to whom the queen had written severally gave her his advice in his reply, and having assembled in the king's presence on a day appointed, they treated with him, touching his mother's complaints and supplications. King Edward, a man of singular simplicity and inoffensiveness, who never did wrong unless at the instigation of another, would have suffered himself to be easily won over by the allegations of the bishops, and would have mitigated whatever severity he had used against his mother or the bishop under the misguidance of a groundless suspicion, not only without demanding a clearance by ordeal, but would himself, by begging pardon, have made amends for his presumption in any way that the bishops might have prescribed. This he would have done, 
had not Archbishop Robert, who had been summoned by the king, opposed it. For so high did he stand in the king's estimation that, if he had said that a black crow was a white one, the king would sooner have believed the archbishop's words than his own eyes. The matter would have been brought to a close on that very day, to the honor of both mother and son, if it had not happened that when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan had not come also among them. Archbishop Robert, making himself, unasked, the advocate of the stronger party, endeavored in such terms as these, to thwart the intentions of the bishops and to alienate the king's affection from his mother. Brethren, said he, ye have had communications with my lord the king touching the business of his mother, no woman but a wild beast. But, that I may spare you, you fling back the crime of the mother upon the son, not in your own words, but in the words of another. This most shameless of women has had the effrontery to wrong the king by belching forth her defamatory expressions against him, and has dared to call that paramour of hers the Lord's anointed. Who knows how to put on the visor of sanctity, who talks of virtue and plays the adulterer, that man whom no one would scruple to subject to the basest infamy in order that she may charge the sovereign with sacrilege. Mark the wickedness of the woman. She calls her Alfwin the Lord's anointed, only for the purpose of having the king punished for raising his hand against him. But let us come to the matter in hand. The woman wants to clear the bishop's character, but who will clear hers? one who is reported to have consented to the murder of her son Alfred and to have procured poison for Edward. But grant that she has an authority above her sex's condition because she is queen. If you wish me to consent to a mode of purgation that has hitherto never been heard of, you too must consent that I shall determine what that ordeal is to be. And if she goes through it wholly unhurt, you may condemn me to be stripped of my rank before God and the king who is on his trial and may reinstate in their former rank those who shall be acquitted. The entire guilt of the king, whom I presume to be innocent, I will take upon myself. Let that infamous woman take for herself four, and for the bishop five, that is, nine steps, without stopping, upon nine burning-hot plowshares with naked feet. If she stumble if she does not press with the entire sole of her foot on the plowshares, if she be hurt even in the slightest degree, let sentence be passed against her as an adulteress and a strumpet. Let each of them, having taken the vows of the strictest order, be imprisoned for life in a dungeon. And you must admit that this sentence is the result rather of tenderness than severity, which, I will not say decrees, but endures, that a capital crime be purged by an ordeal of this peculiar character." The king and the bishops seemed to approve of the archbishop's sentence, and it was determined to assemble at Winchester on an appointed day. The sentence was reported to the queen, who was not more discomposed at it than if she had been invited to a bridal. The news was spread throughout the kingdom that the queen was to undergo this ordeal, and such was the throng of people that flocked to Winchester that so vast a concourse on one day was never before seen there. The king himself, St. Edward, came to Winchester. Nor did a single noble of the kingdom absent himself, except for Archbishop Robert, who feigned illness at Dover, in order that, if matters should turn out otherwise than he expected, he might be able to make his escape without difficulty. And so it happened. The queen was brought back, by the king's orders, from Werewolf to Winchester, and during the whole night that preceded the day of her conflict, 
she kept watch at the tomb of St. Swithin. I need not say that she prayed with her whole heart, that during the night she had but little sleep, that she implored that in a danger so dreadful she might be thought worthy of being delivered. And yet, though she tried to keep awake, she slept a little, and saw St. Swithin standing by her, and heard him addressing her in these words. Be steadfast, my daughter. I am Swithin, whom thou invokest. I am with thee. Fear not. They that persecute thee shall be confounded, because when thou passest through the fire, the flame shall not hurt thee, but thou shalt transfer this evil to thy son. As soon as it was day, the clergy and populace assembled at the church. The king himself took his seat in front of the throne. The queen was led forth before her son, and on being asked whether she was willing to go through what she had undertaken, she signified her assent in these words. My lord and son, I am that Emma who gave thee birth. In thy presence, impeached by thy subjects of guilt against thee and Alfred, my children, and of being an accomplice in having wrought uncleanness and treason with the bishop of this church, I this day call upon God to bear witness against my body by destroying it if I have committed, even in thought, any of those crimes that have been laid to my charge. The pavement of the church having been swept, there were placed upon it nine red-hot plowshares, over which a short prayer was said, and then the queen's shoes and stockings were drawn off, and laying aside her mantle and pulling off her veil, with her garments girded closely about her, between two bishops, one on either hand, she was conducted to the torture. The bishops that led her wept, and though they were more terrified than she was, they encouraged her not to be afraid. All persons who were within the church wept, and there was a general exclamation, Oh, St. Swithin, St. Swithin, help her! If at this moment there had been a peal of thunder, the people would not have heard it. With such might, with such shouts, did they rend the firmament that St. Swithin must, then or never, have hastened to the rescue. God suffers violence, and his servant St. Swithin is forcibly pulled down from the skies. All was hushed, and the queen uttered this prayer. God, who didst deliver Susanna from the wicked elders, and who didst deliver the three children from the fiery furnace, vouchsafe for the merits of St. Swithin to rescue me from the fire that is prepared for me. Behold, a miracle. Her feet, guided by the bishops, she, making nine steps upon the nine plowshares and pressing each of them with the full weight of her whole body and thus treading upon the nine plowshares, she felt neither the naked iron nor the fire. Then she said to the bishops, Shall I not obtain that which I most desired? Why lead me out of the church, who in the church must undergo the ordeal? For she was still advancing and knew not that the ordeal was past. Where to? the bishops replied as well as they could for sobbing. Look, lady, it is over. What you think you have still to do is already done. She looked, and her eyes were opened. Then she saw the iron for the first time and perceived the miracle. Lead me, she said, to my son, that he may see my feet and know that I have suffered no harm. The bishops returning with the queen found him, with his head uncovered, prostrate upon the ground. And now his voice failed him for pity, for tears mingled with his words, and he could not refrain himself. When they had lifted him up and told him the whole matter afresh, that most sacred personage sunk down at his mother's feet, saying, 
Mother, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. His mother replied, Summon to your presence Bishop Alfwin, and when you have given him satisfaction, you will instantly obtain pardon of me. When the bishop, who had not taken his seat among the bishops, was summoned to the king, the monarch sought forgiveness with tears and obtained it. And after being beaten with scourges by each of the bishops, he was smitten thrice by his weeping mother's hand. And thus, having kissed each other, the king received them with favor, and they received the king with veneration, and the queen and the bishop recovered all that had been taken from them. By the king's command, the nature and order of the miracle was proclaimed by the lamenting throng in the church and in the churchyard without, and so suddenly was their weeping turned into laughter that you might see them both laughing and crying at the same moment. Queen Emma, on receiving all the manners of her dowry, which former kings had confirmed to her, was not unmindful of her deliverer, and on that very day she presented to St. Swithin, for the nine plowshares, nine manners, the names of which are, and here the manuscript has blank spaces for the names to be filled in later, presumably after some further research, though they never were a not uncommon feature of chronicle manuscripts. Bishop Alfwin gave, out of his own patrimony, to St. Swithin nine other manors named, again they are blank, Edward the king himself ratified and confirmed the donations of the queen and of the bishop, and gave in addition out of his domain two manors, Means in Portland, and an estate of five hides called Roxale. The queen and the bishop strove to outvie each other in ornamenting the church of St. Swithin out of their own treasures, but he was outdone, either because her ability was greater than his, or because her heart was more set upon the decoration of the house of God. So, a fantastic story. Vivid, exciting, moving, and almost entirely BS. This story of Emma being put through trial by ordeal for unchaste relations with the bishop appears only in the Annals of Winchester, which was written over a century later. The story is full of tropes drawn from chivalric romance and saints' lives and even lives of other monarchs, it makes historical errors, putting certain people in positions or places where they couldn't possibly have been in 1043. And just in general, it shows all the hallmarks of being a literary rendition of a folk memory of a powerful queen fallen from political grace. Emma's fall in 1043 was no fiction, but she wasn't accused of sleeping with a bishop, though a bishop was involved. According to more reliable chroniclers, Emma's close advisor through Harthacanute's reign, and at the start of Edward's, was Stigand, whom Edward made Bishop of Elam at the start of 1043. Emma and Stigand were accused of misuse of the royal treasury, of gross and exorbitant spending, and for this reason Emma's properties were seized and Stigand deposed from his brand new appointment. A bit later, there was also a tale that Emma was accused of supporting an invasion of England by Magnus of Norway, uh, after the death of Harthacanute, um, favoring him over her own son, Edward. Um, in either case, these are accusations concerning abuses of political power, not immorality or sexual impropriety. Of course, it's not surprising that later medieval people might look back on a female exercising more power than they're comfortable with and 
transmuting her offense into one of sexual depravity rather than political overreach. And so one problematic relationship with a bishop is transformed into a different kind of problematic relationship with a different bishop. Her successor as queen, Edward's wife Edith, was herself involved in an adultery scandal with a bishop, an accusation pressed by Archbishop Robert, who featured in today's text. Uh, and so the author of the Annals of Winchester, or the popular folklore he drew from, may well have conflated this scandal of Edith's life with Emma's downfall. In the end, Stigand recovered after a couple of years and went on to become Archbishop of Canterbury, ultimately running afoul of William the Conqueror and dying in prison in 1072. Despite our story's happy ending, Emma never quite recovered. She more or less drops out of the chronicles and witness lists and charters after 1043, living out the last ten years of her life in a presumably constrained widowhood in probably Winchester. She died in March of 1052 and was buried beside Canute in the Church of St. Swithin in Winchester. I do find it interesting, though I can't say much more than just that, uh, that the Annals of Winchester managed to preserve the more misogynist storyline of a queen caught up in a sex scandal, uh, the version of her downfall that ignores the political threat she posed to Edward, uh, while nonetheless trying quite hard to rehabilitate her reputation and celebrate her as a wronged queen uh, whose virtue is proven by divine intervention. I said something last week about how a medieval text will often give you something quasi-progressive with one hand and take it away with the other. Well, here's another case of that. And that's all for Emma. Twice crowned queen, twice widowed, twice the mother of kings, twice exiled, actually more than twice exiled, a life almost too perfectly reflective of the tumultuous time she lived in and often presided over. Uh, since I'm still treating this as a special holiday episode, uh, regardless of how many days ago that holiday may have been, I'm not going to fill in our mystery word from last time. Uh, I'll do that with the next regular episode. Well, with the next episode. Uh, instead, I'll do a little standalone current events-related etymology. And a caveat, the following requires me to pronounce some French and Slavic words of which I have very little confidence in my ability to pronounce correctly. So if you speak any of the languages that follow, um, I hope you can just enjoy my terribleness. So we've just recently marked the 30-year anniversary of the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. What's medieval about Chernobyl, you might ask? Well, here's the connection. A few years ago, when I was reading The Song of Roland for the first time, uh, I found Lay 78 rather curious. It's part of a catalog of the Saracen warriors that the army of Charlemagne is about to face. Uh, and I, I hesitate to even use the word Saracen there, because the pagans, as they're called, are so far divorced from any historical reality that they really might as well be orcs marching up from Beradur. Anyway, this is a description of one of the pagan knights from the Penguin translation by Glyn Burgess. Chernobyl's of Munigray is there as well, his hair sweeps down to the ground. When at play, he can carry a heavier weight for sport than four mules can bear when they are carrying a burden. In the land, it is said, whence he came, the sun does not shine and wheat cannot grow. Rain does not fall nor dew collect. There is no stone which is not completely black. Some say that devils live there.
So I read that name, Chernubles, C-H-E-R-N-U-B-L-E-S, uh, this prince of a blighted land. I thought, that's interesting, and wrote Chernobyl, question mark, in the margins of my book. Um, and I looked up the etymology of the place name Chernobyl on Wikipedia just to see if there was any plausibility to this connection. And I saw that it meant black grass and concluded that, yeah, there's almost certainly some kind of linguistic connection there. And isn't that an interesting little literary coincidence? The discussion of the Chernobyl anniversary reminded me of this weird little tidbit, and I looked into it a bit further to see if I could find any more validation for my educated guess from those years ago. And it turns out that the etymology of Chernobyl is a rather thorny issue uh, because it's become a bit of a hobby horse of end times enthusiasts and consequently of their skeptical debunkers as well. It seems that somewhere in the early internet days, a claim made the round of Usenet groups focused on biblical prophecy and the book of Revelations that Chernobyl means wormwood and is the word that appears in Russian Bibles in Revelations chapter 8 verses 10 to 11. And those are, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. So, where I found an echo of Chernobyl in a very old text and found it an amusing coincidence, some believers found this same kind of thing and saw confirmation of divine providence acting to bring about the end of the world. I don't really want to get bogged down too much into the arguments for and against this claim. Um, I tend to side with skeptics most of the time myself. Um, as much pleasure as I take in Tales of the Paranormal, I'm usually with the debunkers in the end. In this case, um, I don't believe that the Chernobyl disaster was prefigured in the Book of Revelations. Uh, and frankly, even many of the believers who once maintained that it was have had increasing trouble fitting it into any of the typical end-of-days timelines uh, now that it's 30 years later. But I think some of the debunkers also overstate their case uh, for how wrong the apocalypticists are. The debunkers are on pretty solid ground with their first main point. Um, so the claim that Chernobyl appears in Russian Bibles is pretty demonstrably false. For one thing, it's a Ukrainian word, not a Russian word. And as near as any remotely reliable investigators have shown, it doesn't appear in any pre-1986 Ukrainian Bibles either. So that part of the old claim is pretty clearly debunked, setting aside the possibility of some tiny, tiny fringe set of Ukrainian language Bibles that may exist somewhere but haven't actually turned up. A murkier point is just whether or not Chernobyl means wormwood. The skeptic argument is that it does not. It is the name of a different plant, mugwort. This is the point that I think sometimes gets overplayed. So yes, Chernobyl is the Ukrainian common name for mugwort, and wormwood, or Artemisia absinthium, is called polin in Ukrainian. And that's the word, along with its Russian cognate, that appears in most Ukrainian and Russian translations of the Book of Revelations, polin. But mugwort is Artemisia vulgaris. It's a closely related plant to wormwood, and actually some authorities do note that, as a common name, chornobyl is sometimes used synonymously with polin. Which is all just to say that 
though the attempt to inflate the claim by saying Chernobyl is the name of the bitter star Wormwood in Russian or Ukrainian Bibles is pretty bogus, it's not particularly absurd to draw a linguistic connection between Chernobyl and Wormwood. I mean, at least once you've already accepted the magical thinking necessary to believe in prophecy, the assertion that Chernobyl is at least a plausible translation of Wormwood, um, or really of the original Greek absinthos, uh, that's pretty low on the overall list of unreasonable claims being made. That is, the fundamental belief in prophecy is a far bigger stretch than proposing that Chernobyl is a plausible translation of Wormwood. Anyway, before we get back to the Song of Roland, one other quick etymological side trip. If the Greek word absinthos, a word which gives us absinthe, a liquor which historically has a bit of the extract of Artemisia absinthium in it, where does the English wormwood come from? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with worms or wood, at least not directly. Wormwood is apparently uh, an example of a kind of medieval eggcorn. Um, an eggcorn is a linguistic phenomenon where an unfamiliar word is replaced with a more familiar word or combination of words or sounds. Um, and this thing only got a name in 2003, though it's a variation on malapropism, which has a longer history. Um, and the name eggcorn comes from one of the first discussed examples, a woman who said eggcorn in place of acorn. Anyway, wormwood emerges from the Old English word wermod, W-E-R-M-O-D, which frustratingly is listed as being of obscure origin itself. But Old English wermod is cognate to the German vermut, from which French, and thence English, derive vermouth, which certainly isn't absinthe, but has also historically used wormwood as an ingredient. Um, though vermouth uses the leaves of the plant, whereas absinthe uses the root. And to finish out our root talk, where does Chernobyl's de Munigre get his name? First, I should say that I have tried to find someone drawing out the same inference I made. Uh, and it probably is there in a footnote in some other edition of the Song of Roland. But I was surprised to not readily be able to find any articles or essays or even blog posts discussing the linguistic relationship between uh, Chernobyls and Chernobyl. Was I falling victim to a false friend, to use another of my favorite linguistic terms? Initially, it seemed that maybe I was. I found one reference to an etymology of Chernobyls that reads it as coming from the Old French cher nuble, or somber face. Hmm, uh-oh. But my salvation came in the form of a brief article from the April 1941 issue of Speculum by Urban T. Holmes, which is exactly about the etymology of Chernobyls, and coming from a time before most of the world had ever heard of a little village called Chernobyl. And just because there might be some confusion on this point, um, there actually was a village called Chernobyl, which was a separate entity from the planned town of Pripyat, which was built to house the workers who worked in the Chernobyl nuclear plant. Uh, but back to this article. Holmes starts by saying that previous scholars had focused on the second half of Chernobyl's name, the de Munigre, trying to match it to a real place. Uh, the general consensus was that it meant Black Mountain or Black Valley. You've got the Mun, which is Mon or Mont, and you've got Negre in there, 
for black, as in Montenegro, as just one example of many European place names with these basic elements. Uh, but Holmes thinks this approach is backwards. He says, quote, Anyone who has some acquaintance with Slavic languages will perceive at once that krun, black in Old Slavic, with slight variation of form in the other Slavic tongues, must be at the base of Chernobyl's. Is it not strange that the author of the old French Roland, himself a Norman, should mention a wicked pagan whose name means black in Slavic, and that he should describe him as coming from the land of blackness? End quote. So there's no reason to assume Munigray gets its name from a real place at all. It's an invention to match up with the first name and general character of this fellow. So that takes care of the chur. Um, as for the ubles component of the name, Holmes notes that one theory is that it's a distortion of the Arabic al-emir, or the commander, which appears as amuafl and amirabul in other chansons de geste. But ultimately, Holmes agrees with G.S. Lane that the old Slavic word krunevlasu, meaning black-haired, is the basis for the name chernubles. Though clearly, there's room to argue further possibilities, um, and I think some connection to black grass or black stalks or even mugwort seems not much less plausible. Or even some connection simply to an exotic foreign place name seems plausible, and the town of Chernobyl has roots back to at least the 12th century, if not earlier. Anyway, if I've made some egregious historical or etymological errors, I welcome your feedback and comments and corrections. You can reach me on Twitter at MDT Podcast, or you can send me an email at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com, or you can go to that very web domain and write me a comment or just browse for further information about this and other episodes. Oh, and if you're wondering what happens to Chernobyl's of the Black Land, here is his fate from Lay 104 of The Song of Roland. Roland draws forth Durandal, his fine naked sword, and spurs on his horse to strike at Chernobyl's. He breaks his helmet with its gleaming carbuncles, slices off his coif and his scalp, as well as slicing through his eyes and his face, his shining hauberk with its close-meshed mail, his whole body right down to his crotch and right into his saddle, which is of beaten gold. His sword came to rest in the horse itself. He slices through its spine, seeking no joint, and flinging them both dead in the meadow on the lush grass. Yikes! That's all for this episode of Medieval Death Trip. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>